So let's review this last month, Paul writing his letter to Titus, whom he's left on the island of Crete so that Titus could set things in order. He was there to organize the churches. These were new churches that had been formed and they needed order and organization. And one particular way that Titus was to bring order and organization to the churches was to establish elders to help lead in those churches. That was sermon one of the series so far. Sermon two, we argued for the plurality principle. In other words, when you look at the New Testament, it describes those who lead a church, it describes them in plural. There are elders, not one singular elder. And so we argued that point looking at different places in the scripture. In sermon two, those elders work together for the care and for shepherding that particular flock and they do it together. Then sermon three, just last week, we deviated from Titus. We went to 1 Peter chapter five, the first four verses to look at the role of elders, twofold. Uh, twofold role of elders. They are to shepherd and they are to have oversight. They are to shepherd, meaning they are to guide, they are to guard, they are to feed, they are to fold. This is the responsibility of the shepherd. They are to have oversight over the ministries of the church. That's what a shepherd's supposed to do. Now this week, we're not going to look at what the shepherd is supposed to do as much as we're going to look at a more important question. What is the shepherd supposed to be? What is an elder supposed to be? What are the qualifications for an elder? All jobs have qualifications. If you work at a job, you work for a company, there are certain qualifications that you have to meet to have that. If nothing else, in our culture, you got to meet drug testing qualifications. You can't fail the drug test or they're probably going to kick you out of the company. I worked for UPS for a while. I started doing that, uh, you know, eight years ago. And back then they had a qualification. If you worked for them, you had to shave your face. Uh, UPS drivers could not have facial hair. There's still companies that have that uh, as policy. Um, they, they got rid of that a couple years ago, so you see some really scruffy guys now uh, driving around in the big brown trucks. But those are particular qualifications. You work for some company or in some particular area, you may have to have qualifications of certain training that you've met. Qualifications are in every job that we work Last week when I was sharing about my first day on the job with, with Pence Brothers Drilling Company, I mentioned uh, that, that that day, my first day, as, as green as I was, as ignorant as I was, I was a definite danger to myself. That, that's not a, a gentle place to work. I was a danger to the whole crew. I was a danger to the job. And we mentioned this and made this point. Elders who don't know what they're supposed to do are a danger to the church. And certainly we could take it one step further and say elders who are not who they are supposed to be are an even greater danger uh, to the church. And so we want to be as careful as we can as we consider these qualifications that Paul gives to Titus. And the first one on the list is a real doozy. To open the topic, he provides this, this umbrella-like qualification that, that really shadows all the other ones. He says, you got to be above reproach. Notice again verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. Now some of you have a translation that uses this term, blameless. Now that one is tough right there. Blameless? Who amongst us is, is not blameless? 
Uh, that would be like me saying, hey, I need, I need one of you guys to come up here. There's a little switch on that fan. I need you to just jump, and I need you to click that switch. That's, that's humanly impossible, at least as far as I know. I don't think anybody can jump that high. Uh, humanly impossible to jump that high. And, and when we see the term, you got to be blameless, well, well, who can do this? None of us are blameless before God. All of sin, all fall short of the glory of God. And so what's Paul getting at here? Well, this isn't about being blameless before God. It's about being blameless or above reproach before men. Before men. Notice uh, what uh, author Tabidi Anawabayal, I will mispronounce his name every time today, he writes about this and says, being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing and immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. It means that his demeanor and his behavior over time have garnered respect and the admiration from others. He lives a life that is worthy of the calling of God. Go back to my Pence Brothers job. Some of you may have wondered when I talked about that last week and this week, if you had no idea what you were doing, why would they hire you? Why would they put you in that situation? One, because it's kind of one of those companies where they'll hire about anybody. But two, I walked onto that job, didn't have to interview for one reason. My dad, Larry Matthews, the owner of Pence Brothers Drilling Company, Larry Pence knew my dad and my dad had a reputation of being above reproach. And so his son, Josh, got hired on the spot. That's the idea of being above reproach. Christians, we should all be striving every day to live lives that are above reproach. Every one of us, being honest, being courteous, fair-minded, serving others in love. But as Tabidi writes, he says this, all Christians should be above reproach. Christian elders must be above reproach. Understand these qualifications that we're looking at and the things we're going to work through here are things that elders must be held to, but they are things that every follower of Jesus should be striving for. Why? Because these are the character of Jesus Christ. We're all striving for Christ-likeness. And so, so don't tune this out this morning and say, well, if we're just talking about elders, then that just doesn't apply to me. It does apply to you because we're talking about the qualities of our Savior. But why are elders held to a higher standard? Why do you suppose it is? Why is it that I, as an elder, am held to a higher standard of qualification? Here we go. Because I am Jesus Christ appointed under shepherd. He is the chief shepherd, as we've already talked about, but an elder is an under-shepherd, representing him, an ambassador, really, of the chief shepherd. So it matters what that life looks like. Also, I represent Christ Church. I represent you, Meadowview Baptist Church, in the community. When I'm in Walmart with, with my wife and my kids, I represent Meadowview Baptist Church. When I'm at a Chamber of Commerce luncheon, I represent Meadowview Baptist Church. It, it means something. I'm a steward of, of Christ's people. We're going to see that in a moment in the text. A steward is what? A steward doesn't own this. A steward cares for what somebody else owns. 
And as an elder, an elder is responsible to steward and care for what Christ has bought with his own blood. The stakes are high. And also elders are meant to, to model Christ's likeness in their life. Elders, and this is a hard one to, to say, a harder one to live, should be able to say along with the Apostle Paul to, to, to people, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow the example that I set as I follow the example of our Savior Jesus Christ. So faithfulness, respect, integrity in the church, integrity in the home and in the world are key for an elder. And that's where Paul begins. He goes and he begins to deal with the integrity in the home. He talks about the marriage and family qualifications. Notice this, an elder must be, here's what it says, the husband of one wife. Literally, this qualification reads, a one-woman husband. And this has been interpreted through the centuries in many different ways. Let me give you some of those ways. No doubt you are familiar with them. One, some people say it's referring to a man who has only ever had one wife. He's never been divorced, in other words. Two, it refers to a man who is married. He's not a single man, but he is a man who has a wife. Three, refers to a man who, has only, who only has one wife at a time, uh, so he's not a, not a polygamist. And I know we chuckle at that in our culture. It was quite different in this culture. Number four, referring to a man who is faithful to his wife. He's not an, an adulterer. He's not unfaithful. I believe MacArthur's correct when he writes this. He says, the issue is moral character, not marital status. That's primarily what Paul is getting at. But, but here's the thing. Guys, we like clean lines. We like to be able to, to draw the line in the sand and say, this is exactly what it means. If a man has been divorced, then he is disqualified from being an elder. That's the way I understood it growing up. That's what was taught to me. That's the line that we draw in the sand. But what about a man who, of no fault of his own, his wife just leaves. What is the position? And what do we do with the fact that Scripture does uh, give uh, opportunity um, allowing for divorce? We see that clearly in the pages of Scripture. Many of you have experienced the pain of that. How do we handle those things? I, I don't believe God's intention in this qualification is primarily an issue of divorce as it's often been taught. Now, understand this. If a man is divorced and the blood of his marriage is on his hands, he was unfaithful to his spouse, he was a jerk, couldn't control his temper, never uh, strived to learn biblical communication and how to handle biblical conflict, then there are issues and there's baggage present that would more than likely disqualify that man from being an elder and serving in the church. Listen as Phil Riken offers some additional explanation. He says the point of the phrase is probably more general. Elders must be morally accountable for their sexuality. The Greeks and the Romans of the day generally tolerated gross sexual sin, polygamy, was practiced by both Greeks and Jews. Marriage was undermined by frequent divorce, widespread adultery, rampant homosexuality. The words of, of Demosthenes show the scope of the problem. Here's what he says. Mistresses 
we keep for the sake of our pleasure, and concubines for the daily care of our persons, and wives to bear us legitimate children. Understand the culture into which Paul is writing and the culture into which they're trying to find men who are mature, Christ-like. This seems to be a qualification that screams an elder must be above reproach in his sexual character. He must be a man who is faithful to his wife and to his children. He must be a man who fights the temptations of pornography and the wandering eye. He must be a one-woman husband. That's what we can understand from the text. But he also, it says, must have children who are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This second qualification might be more controversial uh, than the first one. What exactly does Paul mean when he writes that the elders' children must be believers? Now, some of you are looking at translations and you're going, that's, that's not what mine says. Mine says they have to be faithful. There's something in there. It doesn't say believer. It says faithful. It's a word that can go either direction. And before I dive into that, that pool of controversy, let me do this. Let me pull from 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's, there's kind of a, a, a brotherhood between the book of Titus and the book of 1 Timothy. Paul is writing to these young men who are trying to, to lead and shepherd and establish churches. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there is a nearly identical list of qualifications. But understand what Timothy says here in 1 Timothy 3. Here's what it says in regards to this elder, the potential elder, and his relationships in his home. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So the point is, if an elder can't manage or steward or shepherd well, this small group that has been entrusted into his care, how will he manage, shepherd, and steward a larger group that's been entrusted to his care? Here's MacArthur's explanation on this one as well. If you want to know whether a man lives an exemplary life, whether he is consistent, whether he can teach and model the truth, whether he can lead people to salvation, to holiness, to serve God, then look at the most intimate relationships in his life and see if he can do it there. Look at his family and you will find the people who know him best, who scrutinize him most closely, and ask them what kind of man he is. But again... I believe this qualification to be a helpful guide. Not a hard, fast rule, not a line in the sand because here's the reality. Sometimes good, faithful, upright kids come from the worst homes and vice versa. Sometimes good and faithful homes can produce kids who live in rebellion against God. And so is Paul demanding that the children of elders be believers or faithful some propose that, that if an elder's children are not professing believers then they are disqualified from ministry but others point out that this idea of them being faithful is being put in contrast with the idea of riotous rebellious debaucherous living in other words are they are they good citizens in the culture 
Personally, I think it is irresponsible to place the burden of regeneration on parents. That's the work of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. However, it does seem reasonable to require that parents are faithful in bringing their kids up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Faithful to plant and water the seeds of the gospel daily into the lives of their kids. The danger here and the warning here is for this reason. If, it, if children are rebellious, they're given to debauchery, the testimony, the effectiveness of teaching for that elder can be called into question. No doubt. I've known pastors who due to the, the frustrations and the difficulties going on in their children's life, they took an extended sabbatical. Said, I've got to focus on my family for a year, for two years. Some of them resigned from the ministry so that they could focus attention. I have the greatest respect and admiration for those who have made those tough decisions in the past in their lives. Here's the thing. Elders must be faithful. They must be committed to their families. It is imperative that we understand this is where Paul starts his list. He starts in the home. He starts with those intimate relationships and says, evaluate it there. And then he moves in to six negative qualifications followed by six positive qualifications. We're just going to look at the six negative ones today. We'll jump back in next week. Beginning in verse 7, after repeating this opening thing, be above reproach, he lists five that follow that first one. Five that follow being above reproach. But, but notice this. Notice the wording there in verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be, and he goes on. Here we see, again, the idea of, of Paul equating the elder with the overseer. Same position, same office. And he also makes this additional claim that he is God's steward. The elder is the one that God has said, I'm entrusting my sheep to you, man. These are your responsibility to care for, to guide, to feed, to lead. You will give an account, a reckoning for the way in which you shepherded and you oversaw their lives. Serious stuff. Notice that he says this, first, an elder must not be arrogant. It's football season. I like watching college football. Uh, one of the things that I despise when I watch college football is when a defensive player makes a, a really good play. I mean, a really good tackle, and you give them credit, and they made a great play. But then they'll, they'll stand over the guy, the running back or the wide receiver, whoever it was that had the ball, and they'll just like taunt them from above them while they're still laying on the ground in a puddle. It, never mind that that defensive player has missed like six major tackles that he should have made, but now that he made the one, he thinks he rules the world, and in arrogance, he stands over and uh, says, who knows what? We don't want to know uh, to that person. But, but there, there's a bit more to this negative qualification than not appointing men who consistently rub their victory um, in the faces of the losers around them. Once again, I'm going to let MacArthur offer some clarity. He, he describes this person as having a self-loving arrogance. Self-loving arrogance. They're consumed with themselves, seek only their own way in disregard of others. And I like this line. This says so much. A pastor should not be a person who could be called headstrong or stubborn. Now that may seem strange. 
Because the reality in our world system, the first thing people look for in a leader is someone who's strong. Someone who is, who's aggressive. We consider that to be a natural leader. However, that is the opposite of the kind of person that Jesus says, I want leading my church. Why? Because that's the opposite of the kind of person Jesus is. It's not to imply that godly pastors don't have strong convictions, that they're weak. The point is that the church who selects a man because of his strong, natural leadership ability will find that what drives him is not a concern for God and God's truth, but a sense of ego fulfillment and a need to be in charge. And that never ends well for a church. This is what Jesus warned against in Matthew 20 when he said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles and they, they lord it over them as those who exercise this great authority and it shall not be so among you. That's not the way the kingdom works. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. My friends, an elder is one like Jesus who puts and prefers the interest of others above his own. Elders lead by serving others. This is what we see in the New Testament. An elder must not have a quick temper or next negative command. Mark Dever writes this, he says, he should not be a hothead who would sooner get angry than work for a solution. An elder should not be inaccessible or rash or quick-tempered. When you serve as an elder, you find yourself in situations that can be anger-provoking. I would say amen to that. And if you tend in that direction, then it is probably best not to serve as an elder. You know, in my study, I came across the story of the author who was recounting a, a couple that he knew. They were members of another church, and they came. They were concerned about their church and the direction of the ministry and concerned particularly about the pastor. And when it came to that point of the conversation, he says, what is it exactly that, that concerns you about the pastor? And so they responded, and he just gets angry all the time. They recounted a recent incident. They were in a meeting and said he's just apt to blow up, and then he'll just storm out of the room. And they said, what, what do we do? What should we do? And the author's advice was simple. You need to get a new elder. He doesn't meet the qualifications that are laid out in Scripture. It may seem harsh, but they're here for a purpose, and they're here for a reason. An elder must retain his composure both inside and outside when things don't go the way he wants them to go. How do, how do you respond when you get a wrong order at a restaurant? How do you respond when, when somebody cuts you off in traffic? When your children disobey, you gave them clear directions. I'm pretty bad at this one sometimes. How do you respond when another leader in the church disagrees with the plans that you've laid out? How will you handle that? An elder must be patient and gentle in the midst of conflict. He has to strive for peace when others want to fight. He must be like Jesus who when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When Jesus was threatened, he didn't threaten him back. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. 
An elder must not have a quick temper. An elder must not be a drunkard. This one should not need serious explanation, but, but please note that this verse, nor any other verse in the Scriptures, offers abstinence from alcohol as a qualification for an elder or anyone for that matter. Again, our, in our desire to make clean lines, it's easy for us to just say, yeah, just, just don't do it. I understand that, that desire. I understand the sen sentiment of that. It just makes it easier on us. But alcohol is not sinful. Drunkenness is. That's what's clear from the pages of Scripture. This is why the Bible is full of warnings against alcohol and, and cautions many to, to stay away from the dangers that alcohol can possess. And so what Paul is calling an elder and elsewhere all believers to is to avoid becoming intoxicated so that you lose control of your faculties, so that you lose your sober-mindedness. And the reasons for this abound. Pastor is a 24-7 position. An elder has to be ready to serve Christ at any moment in time. He can't be intoxicated and inebriated so that he can't fulfill the duties. Can you imagine a shepherd who's responsible to care for sheep who's intoxicated? He wouldn't see the wolves coming. He wouldn't know how to feed himself, much, much more how to feed all the sheep. He's incapable of fulfilling those particular responsibilities. We have to remain in control of our faculties in front of a watching world having what the fruit of the Spirit deems is self-control. Self-control. And yes, this applies to other intoxicating drugs, pain medications, marijuana, which for the life of me, I could not figure out how to spell. Spell check wouldn't correct it for me. I guess that's a good thing. I don't know. Uh, I just could not spell marijuana. I think there's an argument that can go beyond here even into the ideas of, of food into the ideas of entertainment. Can, can, they can become an intoxicating force. It's not that it intoxicates us in the same way as drugs do, but they entice us in the same manner. They violate the, the qualification of self-control that we see elsewhere in Scripture. Men, are you, are you controlled by substances? Believer, are you controlled by substances, experiences, feelings, or are you controlled by the Spirit of God. That's what's meant to control us, to be controlled by the Spirit. The next one is this, an elder must not be violent. In both Titus and Timothy, must not be violent follows what? Don't be drunk. Why? Why would that be? We all know why that would be. Because oftentimes what alcohol does is make people violent and leads to other behaviors. We've got... We've got some cops that are in here. When you come upon a, a situation, Andrew, when you would come on a situation where things seem out of control, what's one of the first questions you ask? You guys been drinking? You guys on something? You want to know to assess what's controlling this person. Right? Do they have any control over their being? Paul's choice of words here, I like this, basically means someone who uses his hand, his fist, a stick, or even a rock to hit someone else. It's a very physical word. It's, it's actionable. That, that was the common way people would deal with conflict in ancient times. You remember that story? We talked about it, uh, I think, this summer when we were in Psalms about, about the, the, the guy who was throwing rocks at David when he was leaving Jerusalem after Absalom had kicked him out. W what's he doing? He's being violent towards David. He was throwing a rock. It's not unheard of today for people to throw rocks at each other, but we tend to be more dignified uh, than that kind of physical violence. People are now more prone to use subtle means of vengeance. 
Spiritual leaders cannot go around punching people, enacting revenge, but rather they seek to resolve conflict biblically, gently, peaceably, humbly. It's what Jesus means when, when he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. But I tell you, if somebody you know, smacks you on the cheek, you turn the other one. If they take your coat, give them your cloak as well. If they tell you you need to go one mile, go two. Jesus is calling us to something more significant here. But it's not just about punching. It's not just about vengeance. Sometimes elders from that same selfish heart of, of violence, they bully others. They threaten others. They can manipulate others. I tell you, this is a constant battle for me. I grew up in a, in a, in a church of, of really good at manipulating and pulling the strings. And, and it would be so easy for me as, as an elder to stand up here and, and manipulate people and say, well, if you really loved Jesus, you would fill in the blank, right? Easy. But not the way of Christ. There's nothing gentle about that. There's nothing loving about that. Now there's truth that does need to be spoken. And there are times where that truth needs to be said and I will say those things. But understand that we're not called to manipulate others, to bully others into service. It's not the spirit of Christ. Finally, an elder must not be greedy of gain. We, we talked about this one a little bit last week, so I won't spend a lot of time, but any man who's enamored with money will compromise himself and will gain somehow in a sordid way. I appreciated this statement. An elder handles God's money, therefore he should use only the holiest of hands. The Bible has a lot to say about the dangers of money. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, something we read recently if you were moving through our Bible readings. As a matter of fact, the Bible has a lot more to say about the dangers of money than it has to say about the dangers of alcohol. Money comes up a lot. Does this prospective elder have a clear understanding? Is he generous? Is he sacrificial? What's his attitude towards these things? These are the negative commands. These are the commands in relation to his family. So we have to ask the question, man, who's capable of these things? I'm an elder and I look through this list and it's like daggers going into myself because I know of instances in my own life where I struggle. Who can do these things? Only those who truly know Jesus, who are following Jesus, who trust in Jesus, who abide in him. As we said earlier, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these qualities. In, in this way, we're not really being asked to do anything new. We're, we're, we, we know that in this life of following Jesus, our objective, our goal is to be Christ-like. That's what it is. We want to live like Jesus. We want the words that come out of our mouth to be the words that Jesus would say. We want our, our body language to be the body language that they would note in Jesus. We want our actions to be the actions of Jesus, actions of service and love. And so we're not being asked to do anything that we're not already asked to do. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the qualifications. Jesus is also the one who empowers us to meet these qualifications. If it is left up to us, we will fail miserably. We'll jump all day and can't click the switch. Can't turn the fan off. It's not gonna happen. But in Christ, we have the ability and then I thank God for this one. Jesus is the one who forgives us when we fail to live up to these qualities. There's forgiveness in him. He knows we're dust. He knows we're made from the dirt of the earth. He knows our frame. Look over with me at Titus chapter 2 if you would. Titus 2 verse 11. These verses will be a bit of a, a refrain, a chorus for us that we're going we're gonna to bounce off of nearly every week. Notice what he says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age my friends the grace of God has appeared it's a reference to Jesus grace has come and that grace is meant to train us to reject the the godless ways of this world and that grace also trains us to have desires for for self-control in our lives to be upright, to live godly lives, to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the flesh. These qualities are applied to us by God through the Holy Spirit. These aren't just like a coat you can just slap on and say, look, I'm, I'm a holy person. These are the qualities that are developed in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. And my hope is not that, hey, man, we really need to just get our acts together. <laughs> my hope is that the Spirit is already at work in us, cultivating these things, developing these qualities. When you consider the list, how does it settle? As Christians, we're striving to live these godly lives and according to these principles. And we don't do that to appease an angry God. Please understand that. I, I don't, I'm not here to say, man, you better get your act together or lightning's going to start coming or holes are going to start opening up in the earth to swallow you. No, we strive to live according to these godly principles because God has already been appeased through the death and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we want to follow Jesus. We want to look like Jesus. We want to love people like Jesus loved people because we know that's what brings glory to God. We're a, a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. And we've been made such so that we might show forth the excellencies of the one who has called us into his family. The one who has welcomed us home. That's why we strive to meet the qualifications we see here. As men, 
We need to strive to live according to these standards because God may desire to use you to shepherd and to care for his flock. That may not be in 2022, but what about 2032? Who's going to shepherd this flock in 2032, a decade down the road? I'll probably be dead by then. My wife's like, oh dear. Actually, she might have been checking our, our life insurance policy real quick. No. Who's going to shepherd the flock in 2042? Men, we must strive to meet the qualifications. I just can't help but think as we, as we move into the future, as we establish plurality of elders, some of those kids that are downstairs right now who are learning these stories. I think today they're learning about Lazarus. Maybe that's next week. Maybe an elder in this church one day. Many of us will definitely be gone at that point. But the gospel will continue to advance through generation after generation. What a beautiful thing. As a church, we have to begin considering those who meet qualifications. I'm telling you, I'm looking. I feel it's my job to nominate qualified men who are called for the consideration of the church. And that's a task that, that quite honestly terrifies me. And, and we need prayer. We've, we've asked you since we started this Titus series, let's pray for wisdom every day as we move forward. You know, we're talking about a building and it's something that we need. I, I'm more concerned about who we select as elders than that whole process. That's how important it is. So I'm going to ask you today, if you'll just bow your head with me for a moment. I want to give you some things that you could potentially be praying for today. And I want to give you some time to pray. Pray, pray for the Spirit to cultivate this fruit in your life. Are you lacking in self-control? Are you quick-tempered? Are, you, are you, you given to too much alcohol? Are there things that you need to rein in? Pray that the Spirit would cultivate that fruit in your life and in the lives of the people sitting around you today. Pray, pray in gratitude that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe today it's a prayer of confessing your own sins. You've grieved, you've quenched the Spirit, you've given in to arrogance. You've not been the family-focused person that you're called to be. You've been greedy, you've been violent. You've been given to too much alcohol. You haven't been sober-minded. Friend, there is forgiveness in Jesus. You just have to confess. So I want to give you a moment to pray and then I'll pray for us collectively in a moment. God, there's a real danger for us to see this list as a checklist of things that we have to do. But that's not the reality, God. This is the checklist of what your Spirit is already doing in your children. 
It's not a work of law, it's a work of grace. And we're just simply meant to cooperate and know what's true and right and and submit to your Spirit's leading in our lives. And so, Spirit, lead, we pray. Convict us where we need convicted, where we are quenching the direction you want to take us. Help us to be loving and, and courteous and gentle and kind and faithful and filled with joy and self-controlled. Help us to live according to the fruit of Jesus himself. Help us to see every day and wake up every day knowing that Jesus didn't come just to down a cross. He didn't come just to raise from the dead so that we could just go to heaven. He came so that we could be conformed to his own image right here on earth. So that in our day to day we could show forth the excellencies of him. Help us to strive for that. Give us wisdom as a church as we move forward considering those who would shepherd, those who would lead. We need wisdom. We need grace. And God, thank you that as I consider the list, as as all of us consider the list of things we've talked about, there's forgiveness. There's hope. There's a second chance. There's a 50th chance because of your grace. And so God, we're thankful for that. Help us now as we go our ways today to live out. Help us to have good conversations, even surrounding your word. That the truths we've looked at here, the truths we sang about today. We pray for our return tonight as we come back for Awana and Thrive. Your word continues to go forth. What a beautiful thing, God. Thank you for our time. Thank you for the attentiveness of your people. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name.